This is chapter 179 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Cherkovich. It's hard to believe it's been a year since many of us were forced into lockdown because of the COVID-19 pandemic. We take a look back at how our world's changed with author and illustrator Leigh Wynn Pham. Then we talk about what it means to survive the surviving with historical fiction author Patty Callahan. All of our lives profoundly changed a year ago when, in an effort to stop the spread of the deadly COVID-19 virus, most of the world was willing to stop going places and seeing people and instead tried their best to continue as normal a life as possible, all without walking out their front door. In other words, our outside lives turned inside. And that is exactly the world that illustrator and author Lewin Pham conveys beautifully in her new book, Outside, Inside. And while it is a children's book, this adult is keeping it on her shelf as a reminder of everything we've been through so far. You've illustrated more than 100 books for children, and as you describe it, you draw the world as you would like it to be. Why did you feel the time was right to illustrate, as you said, the world as it is now? You say that as though it was a decision I made. I don't think I had the choice on this one. Um, at the time that I uh, came up, well, that I started to write this book, one, it wasn't intended to be a book. It was at the time intended to sort of be a, a time capsule of uh, our life under quarantine. My sons were both home. Everything had just changed very suddenly. And, you know, being an artist, you know that, that uh, if you don't record something, you'll quickly forget it. And I, I had the, the gut feeling uh, early on that. We were going to forget these early moments of quarantine. We didn't know how long this was all going to last. And, and I knew there were these fresh moments that, uh, that strike us really hard. Things like as we would go on walks, uh, we would see signs in windows. And I remember being so moved by those early signs that kids would draw and they're trying to reach out from their homes. And uh, we would go through and find those teddy bear hunts on walks. I don't know if that happened where you were, but there were a lot of neighborhoods where people would put teddy bears in their windows for kids to search out as they did their, their little city walks. And um, the eight o'clock, for us, it happened at eight o'clock in the evening, calls out to the first line responders and how the whole city would come together and scream and yell and shout and, you know, scream out support for uh, these people who were putting themselves on the line uh, in service for the rest of us. Um, those moments, they were so new and so poignant early on, and I, I just felt the compulsion to record it because I, I just didn't want to forget those early moments. Um, and so writing this down and turning this into a book, like you said, I've, I've illustrated over 100 books, and it's, it's the way my brain naturally processes uh, what's happening in the world. And I, I found myself turning this into a book Without the real intention of it, I, I don't think I've, I've ever experienced that in my career where I, I needed to show the good in humanity that was coming out early on. It's not the sugar-coated, sweet version of the world, but it was actually the good things that I saw in the world at that moment. And it, it overwhelmed me, and I was happy to be able to do it. And remember, I did it over a, a six-week period, which is very, very fast to do a book. It was it was just me recording as much as I could, as much as I could remember at the time it was happening. Do you think it was therapy in a way for you to, to deal with what was going on? 
you know, I hate books that are supposed to be therapeutic to the author. It feels terribly indulgent. Um, but I think it was more of a grand therapy for everyone, turning it into a book. I'm, I'm realizing now as the book is coming out, so many people have written to me and said, I didn't think I was ready for this book, but it hit all the places it needed to hit. It, it touched me in ways that I forgot I could feel. And it is, I, I don't know that it was therapy for me when I did it. I just know that I needed to do it. I just know that it had to come out one way or another. Now, looking at it a year later, I'm going to say it's, I think it's therapeutic to anybody who looks at it and can see it through sort of a different lens. I mean, it's been a year and I think a lot of us are more jaded and to have something created during those initial days when everything was fresh, I think it just reminds people of what we all did it for, why all this was happening. And it, it, it sort of reinforces the humanity that, that did come out during that time. I love that we're having this type of conversation about a about a picture book that's really meant for like the youngest of readers. The the emotion that people are telling you they had while they while they read it when they picked it up. It's the same thing I felt when I picked it up. And I think, you know, there's snippets of life that you choose to highlight in this book, whether it's from the sourdough baking craze to even, <laughs> you know, the struggle that some families had to pay bills. You really cover everything in all these illustrations. And while kids may like quickly thumb through a book because they want to get to the next page and they want to see the next picture. I think adults are really going to be struck to their core about how well you've captured what we were going through in those early days. I think that, that felt essential to me to do. Um, there was something um, where I felt in my own personal space that we were really fortunate that things went well for us, that our kids were able to transition okay. I worked from home all the time, so it, it wasn't uh, a big change for me. But I was just struck by, you know, I was sitting watching the news constantly if I wasn't in front of my kids. And I was absorbing so much of what was happening in the world. And I was struggling to understand as well what was happening in hospitals, what was happening to some of my other friends who weren't in such great positions. And that to me was essential to make sure that all of that was recorded. I needed to make certain that everything could be, everyone could uh, attach themselves somewhere to the story. Um, and again, I, I don't think I had this far-reaching plan that, oh, I'm going to publish this book and people are going to find themselves in it. It just was my natural inclination to show as much of what was happening in the world as possible. And in a way, if we're going to talk of therapy, that was therapeutic to me. To realize, well, as tough as the lockdown was here, my gosh, at least we didn't have armed guards outside of our door to make sure that we wouldn't go walking our dogs, you know? It was different everywhere around the world. Um, and now seeing again the book, seeing what images uh, certain children or certain adults connect to, I, I can't believe that I managed to catch as much as that. I can't believe, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that I was able to represent as many uh, situations as I could. Um, and, and I love that people can see themselves in the book. And it's, it's true, adults actually are far more emotional about the book than children are. Children like to look through the images and see themselves Adults, when they do see themselves, they cry. They 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 catch hold of something that they hadn't anticipated feeling, and that's um, I don't know. There's there's something incredible about that, and it's not what a children's book I think normally is supposed to do. Um, and it, I'm almost hesitant to call it a children's book. I, I really keep referring it to it as 
a timeline. It's a timeline that we all share together. And I know that there are quite a few people out there who might literally find themselves in this book because I hear that nearly every face of a person in the book is inspired by a real face. It is, yeah. It was uh, It was really important for me to, to make sure that this was our history. And so I, I went through Facebook. I went through news articles. Uh, you know, they're not direct portraits, but they are always based on somebody. They're always based on someone out there. And I've already gotten a, a couple of people responding to me on Facebook saying, was that me? Did you draw me in there? Is that my daughter in the tree? And, um, and I'm always happy to say, yeah, that was, that was you. <laughs> I put you in. I hope you don't mind. Um, but it, it makes it a little more special to me. It, it, it's a real story. It's a real accounting of things. Is that something you always do with your illustrations, or was that something you purposely did for this particular book? I've done it a couple other times, um, but not to this extent, and not with this sort of ferocious need to make certain that that it was real. This this is just a it's a very different book than than what I've I've done before, and making certain that they're they're real people. It, it just felt right. It felt right for this book, and I'm I'm really glad I did it. You know, just one final point I want to bring up. I love that you're able to write this book without ever using the words COVID nineteen, pandemic, or quarantine in the story. I don't want to say it was a deliberate choice. Again, it was made over a six week period. I I look at this book and it's it's a hazy memory to me. It's it, uh, the the time that I spent doing the illustrations, coming up with the words. There was no intention, and at the time, I remember there was there was no political meaning behind anything either. That there was, I wasn't trying to to express a certain message. I was just capturing things, and I noticed that in my uh, everyday conversation with my family, we would never say the words COVID. We just we knew what it was. We didn't have to say it. Um, and this is a such a unique experience, a global phenomenon that all you have to do is show an image of a child in a mask, and you know what the book is about, without ever having to say any of those words. There was also a part of me that, that wondered, you know, how much uh, meaning would be taken away from the book if you did actually say the words COVID, that it would suddenly become something very specific. And my, my, my hope with the book was that it, it stayed broad, that it stayed open, that everyone could um, feel experience from it without having trigger words uh, send them off in different directions. And, you know, even hearing you ask me the question, saying the words COVID-19, it triggers something in you. It triggers a response. And it was not something that I wanted to uh, have felt in this book. What I wanted in this book was just that, that common thread of humanity that we were all feeling. And that was the focus of the book, not COVID, but how we responded to COVID. And I'm hoping that that's what comes across in the book. Do you think you'll ever work on another book that is this deeply personal and emotional? Oh boy, I, I don't think you can ever never say never. Um, but I'm—I don't know when an experience like this is likely to happen again. I mean, certainly during my lifetime, this is—I you know, was born during the Vietnam War. We fled a war-torn country, um, and I'm—I'm going to say that since that moment, I. There's been nothing else that has brought the world together in such a way. My response to this is similar to so many of my friends, so many creators. It's so visceral. It's so, it's so raw. Um, I, I'm not sure that I can answer that question. I, I just know that 
there was no other way for me to respond to what was happening other than making this book. And I, I, think, that's the, I think that's the only promise I can make is that I, I, uh, I couldn't see any other way of, of expressing what hopefully the world was feeling. I think of everything I've read about the pandemic and people try to express it. I think this book really sums up the fears and the hopes and the general roller coaster of a ride we've experienced up to this point. And I hope that people go and pick up Outside Inside. Lewin Pham, thank you for spending time with us today and sharing this story with us. Thank you so much for uh, letting me talk about this book. It's, it's been quite a ride and gosh, I can't believe it's been a year. <laughs> it's crazy. I won't insult your intelligence and pretend you've never heard of the Titanic, but have you heard of the shipwreck known as the Titanic of the South? Neither did I until I picked up Surviving Savannah by Patty Callahan. And, as you'll hear, even Patty was surprised by this bit of antebellum history lost to time. I love the ability of historical fiction to surprise with a story that you think everyone should know because it's such a great story, but it's actually been lost to history somewhere along the line. When did you first stumble across the sinking of the steamship Pulaski? And did you know right away it would serve as a springboard for a future book? Oh, that's such a great question. Usually people just say, what's the inspiration? But what's fascinating is in the very beginning, when I heard about this, I didn't realize I was hearing about this, if that makes sense. There, there is a monument right here in the town I live in that I ride my bike past or walk past all the time. And it's for a man named Samuel Parkman and his four daughters who perished on the Pulaski. I have passed it. I have read it. I have seen it. And yet it never pinged me, right? It never made me think, I wonder what that means, perished on the Pulaski. And then years later, about five or six years ago, a mariner friend of mine here in Bluffton, South Carolina, gave me an article about it and said, I think you'd love this story. It's really interesting. And it's about this area that you love. And I said, you know, I don't really write shipwreck stories, but I promised to read the article. But I broke my promise and I didn't read the article. About a year later, he did it again. I promised to read the article and broke my promise. A year later, he asked me again. And this time I said, print the article one more time. I will read it and I'll tell you what I think. And I read it and I had those chill bumps. That thing, I know you know what I'm talking about. Down the back of my neck, down my arms. There's something here. Not only is this about the area I love so much, Bluffton and Savannah, where I am, but also because it's, not, it's been untold, it's been hidden, and I love hidden stories. So I started doing a little bit of research just to see what I could find about the ship. Is there a story here? Is there enough information? Because I like my historicals to be very research-based. And I was about three weeks into my research when I hit on a headline that said, Pulaski remains found at the bottom of the ocean by endurance exploration, 30 miles off the coast of North Carolina. And I knew, I knew that there was a reason I hadn't been interested in this story yet. And that the moment I was interested, well, someone was bringing up the lost treasure and the lost artifacts. I was right here trying to bring up the lost stories of the passengers. So I melded those two into this book. Thank God for persistent mariners. 
I know. I thanked him. I put him in the acknowledgments. Every his name is Boo Harrell. Every time I do an interview, I try to say his name. I like if there's an article, I send it to him with his name. I know. Yeah. He just knew. He knew that it was something. He knew my love for the area. He knew my love for historical research. And and here's something funny though that I don't haven't mentioned that much. The story he was trying to get me to read was this love story about these two passengers who fell in love during the, the um, wreckage and floated together. And there's this whole like mythological, well, it was a mythological story. So when I started doing my research, I, I believed that story was real. And so I started digging into that. I thought I was going to tell that story. And when I discovered that that story was this mythology created around the explosion, I realized that the true story was even more interesting. So can you give us a little bit about the true story of a, a wreck that was pretty much, it was referred to as the Titanic of the South, right? Yes. What happened was this beautiful steamship called the Steamship Pulaski would take what we might call the flowers of the South north for the summer. It would begin in Savannah, pick up a load of of passengers. It carried about 200 passengers. It was a luxury steamship, gilt-edged, beautiful paddle wheels, sails. There's no photographs because this is 1838, but there are some paintings and pictures and a ship model on my website. And it would sail out, out of Savannah, travel up the coast of South Carolina, dock overnight in Charleston, pick up another crew of passengers, another Lots of passengers, and then travel only one night at sea was its big brag. We will only be at sea for one night, and then they arrive in Baltimore, where these families and these businessmen would then either go do their business in the north or go to their summer residences in the north. And right off the coast of North Carolina at 11.04 p.m., the boiler went empty, and the second engineer poured cold water into a hot boiler and created a bomb, and the starboard side of the ship exploded. It took 45 minutes for it to sink completely, and during those 45 minutes, people were fighting for their life, trying to find floatage. There were only four lifeboats, and only two of them were seaworthy. And I mixed it with a modern day story of a woman who is working with the shipwreck hunters, which is exactly what I was doing when I wrote the book, and is creating a museum display of its artifacts while learning about the passengers and the stories and weaving together the history of Savannah then and now. Survivor's guilt or this idea Mm -hmm. of surviving the surviving haunts everyone who walks away from the disaster in your book, both the one in the past and there's one in the present timeline, which I'll let readers find that one out on their own. And one of the things I appreciate is that not everybody gets a happy ending. Mm. Oh, I love that you said that. I'm writing that down. And it's that's what finally tossed me into this story. We, we talk a lot about finding the door into a story or the entryway or the touch point, whatever language you want to use. 
And sometimes that you know what that is right away. With, for my novel, Becoming Mrs. Lewis, it, I knew exactly what the doorway into the story was. For this one, I was having a much harder time finding out what is its theme? What is it? There were so many people I could have followed. There were so many storylines I could have unfolded. And I finally decided to focus on one family for a lot of reasons that you'll see in the novel. But mainly because the father had boarded with his wife, his six children, his sister, and his niece. And he was a stockholder and a financier for the ship. And it was the right family to follow. And I give you the point of view from the women, from the sister and the niece. That's how you see the story. But what I realized, not a spoiler, you know in the first chapters, the oldest son of that family survived. And he survived five days and five nights floating at sea and earned himself the nickname, the noble boy. Then 20 years later, he had a new nickname, the red devil. He had turned into an illegal and horrific slave trader. He, you'll see. But it brought up this question for me, this bigger question of what do we do with our survival? How do we survive the surviving? It threw into question our cliches like meant to be, fate, destiny, predestination. Because if he survived and lost large swaths of his family, why did he choose to take that survival and become a man who did such harm in the world? He did incredible harm in the world, not only through slave trading and bringing in illegal slaves from the Congo, but in the Civil War, in his life, with his illegal dealings. So why did he live and large parts of his family did not? And like I said, threw into question all these ideas we have about fate and destiny and meant to be. And I don't answer that for you. <laughs> I leave that to the philosophers and, and the preachers. But what I do is try to make us all think about that. How do, how do we survive the surviving? And so I set forth that question for our two women narrators, what they do with their survival and I set it forth for our modern day character who is surviving her own tragedy and has kind of shut, her, not kind of, she has shut herself off from life. So I asked this question about when we survive something like we are all doing right now during COVID, do we thrive or do we just get through it? And so many stories are just about getting through it, right? Like the, the, they survived, they're persevere, they persevered, yay, the end. And I wanted to take it a little bit past that and ask, what do we do with the trauma we went through? Does it live in our bodies? What do we do with it? And that's what I mean by surviving the surviving. Have you thought about what kind of survivor you might be in a situation like this? Wow, that's a great question. I, I have a lot because this book took me years to write. And so I did, I thought about that a lot and I've not been through a shipwreck or floating five days and five nights at sea, but I've been through cancer and I've been through a, a really bad hiking accident. And so, yeah, a lot about 
what that means to get through something where everybody believes, oh, it's over for you, right? That you're, you're free now, it's over, you're on the other side of it, keep going. And so I did. I thought a lot about what it means to, what it means to hold on to leftover trauma, right, to surgeries or to, or to heartbreak or nothing like this ship exploding. But, yes, I, I thought a lot about what it meant in my own life. I interviewed um, a couple of trauma experts about how we hold things in our body or how we can either shut off or move forward in it with, with new, you know, with new understanding. It made me think a lot about how do we make meaning out of our lives after something terrible happens. I want to touch on the, the time period that this happened in, which is in the years before the Civil War. As you mentioned, this, this ship was carrying the cream of Savannah and Charleston society, which, you know, you read between the lines and you realize these were people who owned plantations, had a lot of slaves. Did you struggle at all with conveying the tone and balance of their suffering in this disaster in light of how they treated other people? Because I'm sure there are more than a few people out there who probably think they got what was coming to them. Oh, 100 percent. And I interviewed a lot of history experts in Savannah about this, about how these stories have been mythologized and, and kind of hidden behind the mysticism and beauty of, of Savannah and how to tell the truth about that and how to garner sympathy for someone who had enslaved people. How do we have any, from our viewpoint here in 2021, how do we garner any sympathy for these women who were married to men or, or the sister of men who owned, owned human beings? And I do have one on the boat. The, um, one of the characters we follow, Lily Forsyth, has her nursemaid with her. And I wanted to show that relationship the best I knew how. And I interviewed, like I said, some experts, especially at a place here in Savannah, a museum called the Thomas Owens House and Slave Quarters. They have done an incredible job of refurbishing and showing the hard parts, the abominable parts, the, the embarrassing parts, the parts we try to cover up, along with this big fancy house. And there has to be a way to tell both sides of that story. There has to be a way to talk about 1838 Savannah and its antebellum beauty while, while being honest about why these people were able to live the way they were able to live. And that's difficult and it's complicated. And I did the absolute best I could and interviewed as many people as I could and toured the slave quarters and addressed it in the novel in both present day and in um, modern and in historical times. I had a couple what we call in the pub world sensitivity reads, diversity reads. I wanted, desperately wanted to make sure I didn't get it wrong. I think it's done in in such uh, a sensitive way. Uh, maybe sensitive is not the right word. It's in, it's such a, a, a balanced way because, you know, you do have the characters of your women in the older timeline who realize what's going on around them is probably not the way things should be. But I, I, I like yeah. that you really find a way to 
address what was happening in that present day timeline that you have with the the this museum exhibit that they're doing on the steamship with the friend of your main character who's kind of kind of brings it back to reality. It's like you realize that these these people weren't that great, you know? Right, right. The um, one of the people I interviewed. So I have a podcast. I think it finally drops today where I interview six experts on on air that I interviewed for the book. And one of them, her name is Shannon Browning Mullis, is an expert in all of this and was the director of that museum. And she says, and then there's the myth of the good master, right? We hear these phrases over and over again, and then we accept them, right? No, 100%. And I think you're seeing a lot of this reckoning now with the with the arguments over the Confederate statues, whether they should be remained or taken down, you're seeing it within how history is taught in classrooms. It's it's and the, the conversations are finally being had, right? You know, I'm always loath to to weigh in too much because of the position where I stand. So I just try to listen with empathy and open heartedness and try to understand. It's the best I can do. What do you want readers to take away from the book? Mm. I want them to take away what means the most to them when they're reading it. There are so many themes and layers in this story. And the story shifted a lot when I was writing it because the more input I got, the more people I interviewed, the more the story changed, right? So. I want them to take what pings them the most, but I would love if everyone in a way asked that question of themselves because everybody has survived something. I mean, we've all gotten through 2020, so we have survived something, right? This has been for our nervous system, both individually and collectively, this has been a hell of a year. I mean, it's been nuts and so I want us to all ask, what do I do with that? Do I just survive it or do I make meaning out of it? Do I thrive? What can I do with it? What does this mean for me? And those are hard questions to ask, but I also think they're really important questions to ask. I 100% agree with you. And I think that everyone wants to think they're going to be that good survivor. But honestly, I don't think we know until we are faced with something on the level that we've we've had. Oh, 100%. And I think, too, that um, we want to believe that. And one of the um, shipwreck hunters that I interviewed said what they see over and over as the stories start to rise with the remains of the ship is that people are who they really are in that moment. When the ship explodes, and that's not only literal but a metaphor, when the ship explodes, Our character rises to the surface. Who are we at our core when the ship explodes? So take that literal or take that as a metaphor. You know, there are men who helped other people onto the lifeboats and gave up their wrath. There are men who threw other people overboard and scrambled for their life. There are women who ran for their children and women who did. There's the widest array of human behavior in a moment like that. And you see it every time in every disaster or challenging time that humans face. Yes, yes. And so, I, you know, we wonder who we would be 
well, look what happens when, you know, even something smaller goes wrong. Do we react? Do we not? Do we act instead of react? Those bigger questions of who we are and, and what does that mean for us? We've been chatting with Patty Callahan. The book is Surviving Savannah. Thank you for spending the time today and digging into all these deep philosophical questions with us. But I know in the end, it's really a very enjoyable read about something I think a lot of Americans will be surprised to learn happened. Yes. And 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 I can tell you love it, too. But untold stories are a little bit like finding out a great secret. Like, whoa, I had no idea. So that's what drew me to this story. And something to share at the next dinner party. There you go. If we ever have one again, I'm looking forward to it. So am I, Patty. So am I. Hopefully we can be at one together. That would be really nice. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time around, I'll introduce you to a delightful mystery series featuring a spunky Victorian butterfly collector with a knack for attracting trouble. Until then, why don't you go ahead and collect all our posts on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. See what I did there? I'm Lisa Chernkovich.